All right, so, um, so hopefully this is a bit of an interactive sermon. I haven't got notes prepared, so there'll be, I'll be talking from the slides, which should make it a little bit more interactive, hopefully. Um, we're up to a story which is about a tent peg used to kill someone. It's a pretty violent story, isn't it? Does that really gonna, is that really going to have a message for us today? Just a story about someone killing someone else with a tent peg? I don't know. Let's see what we can, what we can find today. Um, so we're looking at Judges 4 and 5. Judges 4 tells a story. Judges 5 is a song that is sung afterwards. And we'll read all of Judges 4 together, and then only snippets of Judges 5. And I'm just going to share some thoughts on the way and hear your thoughts. So the chapter starts. Uh, if you remember, Ahud was spoken about last week by Malcolm. And uh, following him... Can I dramatically reenact the scene? <laughs> Which one's that? Uh, the Ahud scene? God, yeah. <laughs> go. Delivered from God. Can you, okay, go on. Dramatically remind uh, okay, us of the scene. Sorry, you want to be the king for me? We need a few pillows in there. Your Majesty, I've got something important to tell you. Oh, really? What is that? Uh, a message sent from God. Oh my goodness. So remember that story last week, which is brutal and violent. We've got one even more brutal and violent this week. Um, so. Ehud was the judge who brought about freedom for the Israelites again. And for a time, uh, they followed God again. But after his death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So, I don't know, what do you think that means? This comes up again and again in the Old Testament. The Israelite people did evil. What do you think it might mean? Well, I suppose it's like that last phrase in, in the chapter, you know, that everyone did exactly what they thought was right in their own eyes. They created their own morality, yeah. what was right for them. Yeah. Usually Interesting. Usually involved worshipping idols. It seems to be that's a pattern. I think so. That's almost always implicit in there, isn't it? Yeah, so, so that's right. So uh, I think uh, this is a picture of Baal, or Abal, one of the, the weather and fertility gods of ancient Canaan. So, before the Israelites came into Canaan, uh, from the time of Joshua, this was a god commonly worshipped. And they came in, and they promptly forgot Yahweh, the one true God, and started worshipping Baal. And they started sacrificing towards Baal. And that would have involved having temple prostitutes, and uh, forgetting who the real creator is, and thinking that Baal was the one who would send the rain, or Baal was the one who would bring the crops to grow putting the totally wrong, uh, totally wrong emphasis on. And it wasn't just Baal, there were a whole host of gods. There was, there was Moloch. It was a, a, a god that demanded child sacrifices. So the people in that part of the world sacrificed their children to Moloch. They murdered their children. There were all sorts of gods. And it got me thinking about... What we put into us has a, an impact on what we bring out of us. So when we start believing in gods like Baal, we do things that Baal wants, that we believe Baal wants, like go to the temple prostitutes, sacrifice to Baal. We start believing that Moloch demands our child or our children to be sacrificed, so we murder our children. Our inputs 
affect our outputs. We get out what we put in. Now, that's because we all have this, this emptiness in us, this, this God-shaped hole in our, in our heart, in our mind. And we fill it with whatever's there. We, we fill it with something. And when we start filling it with Baal and Moloch, we end up with a pretty horrible society. But we do the same thing today, don't we? We fill that God-shaped hole with drugs. Lots of drugs. I'm amazed at how many drugs are on the Gold Coast. We fill it with power, seeking power. Look at what's happened around the world in different times, in different places. People would do anything to hold on to power. We fill it with all sorts of, uh, all sorts of sexual activity that may not be the way God wants us to live. We fill it with money and wealth. Whatever we put in, we're putting these things in, it has an output and affects who we are as people. Let's go to the next slide and keep reading. Anyway, so back to Judges. They've just done evil on the side of the Lord. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived at Harasheth Haggim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. The Lord turned the people of Israel over to this king who ruthlessly oppressed them, caused them suffering. I wonder, what do you think? Why, why would God allow suffering? Why would he possibly even cause people to suffer? What are your thoughts? Neil? Well, that's what he said he'd do if they didn't follow his covenant. Okay, he's following through on a promise like a father or mother following through on the discipline they promised their child. Yep. To help future generations not make the same mistakes. Oh, right. It has that sort of impact, doesn't it? You can look back and say, look what we did, let's not do that again. It made me think of, um, I don't know, kids that do have an assignment due the next day. And sometimes there's a parent who'll stay up late at night and help that uh, child complete an assignment. And in the short term, that might stop some pain. But in the long term, that actually is an unhelpful thing to do, probably. Sometimes we have to fail so that we don't do it again. Um, so we should be allowing our kids to fail their assignments, particularly now in year nine or seven, <laughs> rather than uh, so that by year 12, they get it right. Same with university. Anyway, so this is uh, a map of, of Israel, of after the exodus and the conquest. These are the lands, and... Remember, Israel had 12 tribes named because of the 12 sons of, of Israel, or Jacob. And each tribe of people, of Israelites, was given a certain area of land to live in. And though it was just meant to be, just meant to be Israel in this land. That's what God promised them. That's what he said he would give them. And they were meant to take the land by conquest and have just Israelites there. But they didn't actually do that. They didn't succeed. They didn't follow God's plan for them. And so mixed and scattered throughout their lands were other towns and cities with other sorts of peoples living there. Not necessarily a bad thing, except for them it was, because those other peoples were the ones who introduced them to all the gods, the other gods. And you can see up here is Hazor. So right in the middle of Naphtali, there's a, a town which is Canaanite town with Canaanite people and a Canaanite king. And you can see this is the Sea of Galilee, so that's kind of where Jesus... Spent a lot of his time, and down here is Jerusalem, 
in Judah, in Bethlehem and Jerusalem down there. This was probably taking place about 1150 BC which was right as the Bronze Age was coming to an end and the Iron Age was just beginning. So a few cultures were starting to discover how to smell iron and how to make iron, um, iron swords and iron spears, which did what, Matthew? Uh, they, they worked better. They worked better. A lot better at killing people, hey? Made them a lot more powerful. And so obviously um, this, this king, King Jabin, was in a town which had discovered how to use iron. So his army must have been quite formidable. Um, Israel probably had about a million, maybe two million people. I don't know exactly how much, but somewhere around there living in this area. And we know this guy, Jabin, had 900 chariots. Here's a picture of chariot from that time, from the Canaanites. And you can see they had a number of men that would fit on a chariot. So we're going to have at least two or 3,000 men on the chariots alone, which, which were the best weapons of the time. Chariots were like the modern-day tanks of World War I. You could run through and kill lots of people on them. And of course, uh, I did some reading about, about armies in the time, and often there's about 10 times as many foot soldiers as there were charioteers. So we've got another 10,000 men there, soldiers. So it's a pretty formidable army. Maybe not an overwhelming army. If all the Israelite men banded together, maybe they could fight him off. Um, but certainly not one small tribe. And so Jabin ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites, caused them to suffer. Now, around that time, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophetess who was judging Israel. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kedesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor, I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. So Deborah, wife, prophetess and judge, lived in the hill country of Ephraim. She lived all the way down here. And you can see what the hill country looks like. This is a photograph from it today. Another photograph. It's a real place. And she was judging Israel. And you can see what she was doing as she judged them. She used to sit under a palm tree or some sort of tree and people would come to her with their disputes and she would help them settle it. So that was one of the things that judges used to do. And the other thing judges used to do was uh, would be military leaders. Now she wasn't going to be a military leader, which is why she called Barak. And God gave Barak a task. Let's just go back one, one more actually. And she was a prophet or a prophetess. So who wants to share what they think of when they think of a prophet? What do you reckon? What do you think of? A person who hears directly from God. A person who hears directly from God. Exactly. So we often think about prophecy as some future far-off event, telling the future. But that's not actually what a prophet is in the Old Testament or was. A prophet might do that. But the key thing about a prophet in the Old Testament was a prophet would hear God's message for the people. Usually telling them to repent because of a sin they were committing, but it could be anything. Someone who would directly hear a message from God for others. All right, let's keep going. So, Deborah's just talked to Barak and told him he's got to take some men to fight Jabin and Sisera. And this is what Barak said. He told her, I'll go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you. 
but you will receive no honour in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. At Kedesh, Barak called together the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. So what do you reckon about Barak's response? I'll go, but only if you go with me. Why might he have responded that way? Put her money where her mouth was to prove that she actually genuinely believed it was God that was saying this. Yeah, you know, it, it seems reasonable in a way, doesn't it? If you really think God's telling me to do this, it's a big task, I'm going to fight one of the most formidable armies in the region, you come with me. Are you willing to, to die along with me? Yes. That's how I read it too. Was the very well conditional though? If I come along, then the woman's going to do it. Yeah, well, it might be, mightn't it? Yes. Do you think there was an assumption, like, reading to that, that she was almost saying, like, when he said, come with me, and she going, okay, I'll come with you, there was a sense that she would be maybe giving the people some of a pep talk directly as opposed to having to go through him? So she was actually taking on a little bit of the leadership? I think so. Yeah, yeah I think she saw the battle happen. She directed when it happened. but it's actually not her she's talking about. So she's talking about another woman who's going to come into the story soon. Let's keep going. (laughs) Now, Heber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the Oak of Stanamin near Kadesh. So it's a a tent you can see in that part of the world. And uh, Kadesh is up there in the map. So here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Kadesh near Hazor, uh, in Naphtali, we have Heber the Kenite. So there's all sorts of strange details there. Why on earth put all these details in? When I see details like that, I wonder why are they there? And then I was thinking about it, and I have a few thoughts. Why do you reckon those details might be there? Every time they add details, it adds authenticity to the story, I think. Yep. Um, And perhaps there are other events going on at the time that people would remember characters in the story that they associate with and yep. know that this is real yep. history. I think so. So I reckon they're probably key reasons why those those sort of details are actually helpful. Do you want to go to the next slide? I didn't write them down. But I think that's exactly right. They tell us there are real people, real places, this is real history, this happened. And it helps you remember it too, doesn't it? You can put it in connection. Maybe for us it's harder to connect all the dots, but maybe for people back then it really helped them connect the dots. Okay, so off go, off go the armies of Israel. When Sisera, remember, he's the king of, uh, sorry, he's the chief commander for King Jabin, the bad guy. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all nine hundred of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth Hagim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, "Get ready." This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So there's Mount Tabor today, and here's the river. Again, real places. You can imagine them looking down at the top of Mount Tabor. At Mount Tabor. I can't imagine if I was a warrior, I would want to go down. <laughs> You're in a safe spot up there. I can't imagine you'd want to go down into a battle. But anyway, Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. 
When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. And Sisera leapt down from his chariot and escaped on foot. And Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Harasheth Haggim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. So why do you reckon the panic happened? And what does it mean that he escaped on foot? Why, why would he be escaping on foot? He had a chariot. They were in a position of high and they yeah. came down. That's a position of advantage. Yeah? yeah. Well, that's not... They're kind of giving it away, aren't they? If he was in a chariot, he took off because he couldn't turn the chariot around because the horses were being stupid. Maybe, yeah. Horses else, the horses will always go a bit crazy. Yeah. People go crazy. Right? Yeah. yeah, they came down. Like, you imagine 10,000 men screaming, which they would have been. The horses would have got upset. And of course, when you've got horses attached to something very heavy, it's not going to end well. Yeah, possibly. I still wonder, like, these were fighting, this is fighting men who hardened warriors who were much more powerful than the ones attacking them. Why on earth did they go into a panic? Something God's doing is making, he's intervening, isn't he? They should have won, I think. That's the story seems to think they should have won, but God's actually working in the hearts, not just of the Israelites but of the opposition to make them panic. Let's uh, keep going. There's, a, there's a, bit of a, um, a bit of a clue as to why they may be panicked. Uh, the very next chapter, Deborah sings a song, and these are some of the words from her song. Down from table marched the few against the nobles. The people of the Lord marched down against mighty warriors. They followed Barak, rushing into the valley. Zebulun risked his life, as did Nephtali, on the heights of the battlefield. The kings of Canaan came and fought at Tanak near Megiddo Spring, but they carried, off, they carried off no silver treasures. The stars fought from heaven. The stars in their orbits fought against Sisera. The Kishon River swept them away. That ancient torrent, the Kishon, marched with, on with courage, my soul. Then the horses' hooves hammered the ground, the galloping, galloping of Sisera's mighty steeds. I, I don't know, I get the impression... They got bogged down in the water. A big storm happened. Something spooked everyone. Almost like God intervened naturally to make, make them panic. Um, so I think there's a message for us in that. When we follow God's call, He influences and intervenes to make sure what He promises happens. The earth shook. The earth shook and the heavens poured and the clouds poured down water. So there you go. That was God intervening. Yep. A huge storm. Yeah, exactly. So maybe that's why Sisera had to jump off. It was all bogged in mud. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent. She covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water. He said, I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. She put him in hiding. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if there's anyone in here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. She drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground. And so he died. So he must be on ground in bed. So there must be a low bed. 
It's pretty violent, pretty gruesome, hey? No. So the first thing that, that I read as I think about as I read that is, is so violent. But isn't God peaceful? Doesn't he call us to be peaceful? So what are your thoughts on how does this all mix together? Any thoughts? Maybe it was appropriate consequence and punishment, righteous anger, well, yeah? If they'd done the right thing in the first place, the Israelites would have cleaned the land and been able to live as Israelites with no other. But because they didn't, they now have to do this type of stuff. Yeah. Um, yep. As as it is. Yeah. Yep. It's like we're a Bible project boat video where it's because God uses these sinful people to do stuff doesn't mean he condones their specific choices. Yep. Do everything. So I don't think it says anywhere here that this person was instructed to brutally smash someone through the head, the tent head, yep. while they were asleep. While they were asleep, yeah. So, yeah. so it's interesting, like, don't know how to say it, but J-A-E-L, was she actually an Israelite? No. So God uses... No, she's yeah, not. Like yeah, her, her husband was, was uh, in favour of the God King. Yes, so she was, that's right. So she was connected via Moses' extended family from generations ago. And it sounds like she and her husband were at peace with both the Israelites and Jabin. Later, yeah. So those Israelites kept on getting it wrong. I know. That's exactly right. Let's keep going. So I had a few thoughts. Um, Look, Jesus, we know, never advocated violence. I can't see anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus advocates violence for us anywhere. Um, So that's just worth bearing in mind. Jesus commanded his followers to be peacemakers. And as Tim said, and the Bible Project said, the presence of violence may not mean, meant to be a knot there between, <laughs> may, may not mean that God endorses it. Right? He may not. On the other hand, as Steve said, actually evil requires justice. Right? Um, you know, think about the most evil people in history. Surely they deserved justice for, for their incredible cruelty and evil. And actually, protecting the innocent against cruelty is a loving thing to do. A loving thing to do. Sometimes, um, if violence is done in the name of protecting someone innocent and vulnerable, maybe that's actually an act of love. So, I'm not saying any of these three. I don't know which one it is, but there are there are some times that we can understand violence when we think about evil in the world and the justice that's required the need to protect those who are vulnerable and innocent. And maybe sometimes violence happens and it's used by God, although it's not endorsed by God. So the story continues, or finishes. When Barak came back looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he followed her into the tent, and he found Sisera lying there dead with a tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king, and from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. So, interesting story, isn't it? You wonder why on earth, though, is that story there for us to read in the Bible today? What do you reckon, Malcolm? What have I got to the next one? Oh, Deborah's song. So this is how Deborah talks about jail. 
Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. May she be blessed above all women who live in tents. <laughs> I was reading a little bit about, about um, this, this song, and um, there are a whole bunch of 13th century Christian sort of scholars, um, I guess, who, who see this in parallels to, to the song about Mary, Blessed Be Mary. Um, and then they see parallels between the nail and the tent peg, the nails on the cross. I'm not sure you can make those connections, but anyway. No. Sisera asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for noble, she brought him yogurt. Then with her left hand, she reached for a tent peg. With her right hand, for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera with the hammer, crushing his head. With a shattering blow, she pierced his temples. He sank, he fell, he lay still at her feet. And where he sank, there he died. The poetry of the Bible was quite... I actually quite enjoyed that. <laughs> I'm not a poet either. <laughs> but why on earth is this story included in the Bible? Is this just a historical account for us to be able to see the, the movement of Israel through history? Or is it actually a message for us today in this story? Let's keep going. Well, I think there are some messages that we can take out of it. And the first one I've already talked about a little bit. Our sin has consequences. We forget God at our peril. If we give up on God, life will get worse. And that's true at both a societal level and a personal level. You know, our society is giving up on God bit by bit. No longer believes God is real. And that has consequences. It's going to change our society. It's changing societies around the world. Societies like China, where, where the government bans Christianity. Well, it bans Christianity unless it controls it. Yeah, you end up with, with power-hungry tyrants, like in Tiananmen Square. But at a personal, life, a personal level, when we forget God, our, our personal life becomes miserable, and we fight and argue, and kids suffer, and people suffer. You know... Our society seems to throw away God and his, his ways of life. And we do end up with terrible tyrants like Jeffrey Epstein. And we end up with a society which totally changes how it views children. Like that little boy there, where they're clapping on Good Morning America. And you know, this is from the recent marches in America about abortion. We start to throw away God and we start to change our society. And the society we're going to end up with isn't going to look... Beautiful, I don't think. But another message for us is that God hears our cries. He cares about our suffering. He brings us comfort. He will bring us comfort. So when we cry out to God, we know he responds. And that happened in in the history of Israel. Time and time again, they would cry out to him when they were suffering. And God would bring redemption and salvation to them temporarily. And that happens throughout our life in small ways, in big ways. But the biggest way, of course, is our biggest suffering, is the suffering that comes with sin, the separation from God, the eternal death that comes with that. And that suffering, of course, God sees and knows and understands. And he brings us comfort through the cross. That's how he overcomes our suffering, our sin and our death. And that's our biggest need. And that's what God brings us, eternal life through the cross. 
But perhaps our third message for us today is God does what he says he's going to do. When he calls you to do a task, therefore, do it without being afraid. Barak, I think, was a bit afraid. He shouldn't have been. God always follows through and does his tasks. And you've got a part in that plan, that plan of redemption that God's got for all of us. We've all got a little task, a part to play. And when we get given that task, we should be courageous in doing it. You know, I thought of some little things that, you know, sometimes we're afraid to do. I remember sometimes I've been out with some other ministers chatting to them and we want to pray at the end and we're in a cafe. And some, some of them are a bit afraid to pray. Why would we be afraid to pray in public? You know, we shouldn't be. At work, sometimes we can be a bit afraid. I can be a bit afraid to mention that I'm a Christian or or to mention something to do with Christianity or Jesus. Why should we be afraid of that? That's our calling. Some people have the, the, the task of going to Bible college and studying theology to be a minister one day. And they should do that without fear. There are other people that have a task to speak about the truth in a fallen world. So that's probably our biggest calling from a message from uh, Judges chapter 4. When God says he'll do something, he'll do it. And so when he calls you to take part in it, we can do that without fear. So this week, go serve God, be part of his calling without fear. I want us to finish with some prayer. Maybe just to pray for courage. Who would like to pray out loud on behalf of all of us, uh, asking, us asking God to give us courage to follow his callings this week. Thank you, Neil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you desire intimate fellowship with us. You've given us your word and you command us through the Apostle Paul. You say, come boldly to the throne of grace. And that's an invitation and a command, Lord. And Lord, your word is a word of doing, of listening and doing and acting. Holy Spirit, within us, we know you're there. And we ask that you would cause us to respond and react to your word and your promises. Help us to be about the doing business and following through and having courage to do what you have revealed to us, what we know that we know what we should be doing. For the word of God says, and this we know, we know that God is real. We know his word is true. So let's be about God's business this week. In Jesus' name, amen.